Amen, amen. Hey, it's good to be back with y'all, have an opportunity to continue our study in this journey towards Easter. You know, I was thinking, uh, kind of reflecting on judges and, and, and how that wraps up and just really thinking this transition between having a judge and having a king. And I was reminded of a story my parents have told me a number of times about one of my first cousins who's older than me but made so many mistakes that he's uh, kind of become a legend in our family, just kind of fodder for levity and, and moments of just recognizing how bad he was at making decisions. One year when he was a kid, he just kind of hounded his parents over and over and over again. I want a BB gun. I want a BB gun. I want a BB gun. I mean, just, like, just kind of this broken record hitting over and over and over again. I want a BB gun. I want a BB gun. I want a BB gun. So being loving parents who can only take so much, they bought him a BB gun, right? And so they get him this BB gun, and, and he's out there, and they live on 100 or so acres, and he goes out behind their house, and all of a sudden, they're in the house, and they hear, which was just kind of his hello greeting anyway. And so they saunter outside, and, and he's standing there, tears running down his face, BB gun laying on the ground, and he looks up at them. Instead of saying, I hurt myself for all these things, he says, you did this to me. I said, what? He said, you knew I wasn't ready for this. You knew I couldn't handle this. It's your fault that I'm shot. Wanting to test the strength of the BB gun, he had placed it on his rubber boot and pulled the trigger. <laughs> and it was strong enough. It went through the rubber and located itself in his big toe. But in that moment of pain, he cried out, you did this to me. You failed me. It's your parents. It's my parents. You should have known that I wasn't trustworthy. That this would be the exact thing I would do. And honestly, hearing the stories they've told about him over the years, I'm thinking they failed him. They should have known exactly that's what he would do. Now listen, the end of the book of Judges has a line that really kind of has the same idea. Verse 25 is at the end of the book. Chapter 21, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, implicit in that is the idea that if we only had a king, we wouldn't act like this. If we, if we only had a king and not these fallen judges, we wouldn't, we wouldn't act like this. We wouldn't engage in these craven pursuits. We wouldn't do these heinous things. If we only had a king, this wouldn't be kind of who we are and this wouldn't be how we are. But when the book of 1 Samuel opens up, we recognize that, that the first two people really addressed are two different kings. And so we're introduced to Eli. And in Eli, we see this judge who's out there, and, and he's not passing on his faith to his children. And his children are named Phineas and Hophni, and these guys are reprobates of reprobates. And so he's out there, and he's a judge, and the people aren't distinctly different. And following Eli, we see God raise up Samuel, and that is Samuel's going along, and he's judging. Samuel commits, in some sense, the same failure of passing on his faith, faith we see in Eli. And this is the same thing we saw back in Judges chapter 2 in verse 10. In those days, the people began to not know the Lord or the things of the Lord. They failed to pass on their faith. So the men and women of God come to Samuel in chapter 8 in the book of 1 Samuel. 
And essentially, they're keying in on this idea there at the end of Judges. In those days, there was no king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so they begin to go to him and say, listen, Samuel, we've been checking out your kids. And, and what we see in your boys is that they aren't ready to lead. They're not following in the way of the Lord. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. It says, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else around us. We don't want to be distinct. We don't want to be different. We want to be like them. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel goes before God, and essentially he's saying, these people are failing. They're craving. These people are pursuing things they shouldn't. But look at how the Lord responds to him in verse 7. This is so incredibly instructive. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you. Now, God's not saying, I endorse this. I think this is a good approach. I think this is the right approach. But what he is saying to them is so incredibly helpful for us when we are shaping this discussion. He said, do all that they have instructed you to do, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all of the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. He says, give them a king. Give, give them what they're asking for, but we need to understand something. In their request for a king, they completely neglected the fact they failed to recognize that they already had one. They already had a king. But they failed to recognize God as their king. They wanted a king they could see. They wanted a king that could go to battle for them, and they failed to see in those that God has been raging war on their behalf from the moment they left Egypt, driving out people before him, instilling fear in the hearts of people before him, God has been their good king. He has been their mighty right hand. They want a king like all the other nations, and so they get one. Samuel goes out, and what he finds is a guy who is the prototypical king. Like if we were casting him today, he could serve in a number of different roles. He could be Superman. He could be Batman. He's tall. He's handsome. He's powerful. And his name is Saul. In chapter 9 and verse 2, it says, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Everybody say, mm-mm. That's what they said when they saw him. It said, There's not a man in Israel more handsome than he, for he was his, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. He was a big guy, and he was good to look at. Saul was handsome, but Saul's heart didn't beat for the Lord. And so what we find in his short time in king, he begins to shortchange the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14, we see that he makes this craven mistake. Saul offers up a sacrifice thinking that it's merely just this perfunctory exercise. It's really just going through the motions that God is concerned about. He's not concerned that we hold him up as holy before him. Hold him up as holy before the people. So in verse 14 of chapter 13, it says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. 
Saul, in this brief time of serving as king, is powerful, and he looks the part. They rejected the king they had for the king they wanted, and the king they wanted failed them miserably. So God sends the prophet out to find another king, and what we find, and what you know if you've been in church any length of time, is that he lands on the man of David. And so Samuel goes out to the house of Jesse, and Jesse begins to run his sons through there. And, and Samuel's like, mm, you know, this could be the one, this could be the one. He's like, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. And in 16 and verse 7, continuing on in the book of 1 Samuel, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature. What were the two first things that we read about Saul? He was good looking and he was super tall. And what does he say here? Don't look, pay attention to what he looks like. Don't pay attention to how tall he is. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. And then in verses 12 through 13. We see that God's favor rests upon David. So it says they sent out and they brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. And he was handsome. And the Lord says, arise and anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went on to Ramah. Well, if you've been in church any length of time, you'll recognize that David is his king. And it said over and over and over about him that he is a king after the Lord's heart. And so he's doing the, the deeds of the Lord. He's, he's fighting God's battles. He is representing him for the people. And you'll recognize that God gives this great promise to David. In the book of 2 Samuel, we come to find out that, that God gives to David this fantastic promise that is finally fully realized only in the person of Jesus. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, we read these things. God says, these, says this to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come, after, shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And you shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Listen to what he says. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God entrusts, he gives to David this sure promise that his kingdom would continue. He makes a covenant, a promise with David. And from this, you can track down through, and we begin to see how man after man after man, and then eventually it lands at Jesus. But from the line of David and the life of David, we recognize that he was this king who had the heart of God, but he had in himself the sin of man. And so David engages in adultery. David engages in a plot for murder. Ultimately, the kingdom is passed over to David's son Solomon. And Solomon, the fantastic thing we read is that God tells him essentially, I'll do anything you want. What do you want? And he says, what about wisdom? And so God gives to Solomon all the wisdom in the world. And so you've got this man, and he's got all the wisdom of the world. And from this, the thought is, I have finite wisdom, and I make 
lots of mistakes, but he has all of the wisdom of the world. Surely his life would be this model of righteousness before the Lord. But over the course of Solomon's life, we see mistake after mistake after mistake and bending and moving into where his heart at the end of his life is softened to paganism. To where his heart at the end of his life is moving away from the Lord. Solomon, this beacon of wisdom, we recognize that all of human wisdom falls and fails. Every earthly king will fall and fail. And from Solomon, the kingdom goes to his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, wanting to one-up his dad, has a group of men come to him. And, and, and they're discussing in this kind of labor dispute. How is this going to be? How are these things going to go? And Rehoboam goes with his buddies and goes with their advice. And so he says, my dad whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. Y'all, I don't even know how that's possible. This is what he said to them. And so how they respond is like, pack it up, boys. We're moving out. And the kingdom splits. And so what we see following Rehoboam is this split kingdom. And from this split kingdom, we see Israel move through this course of having 19 kings, none good. A brief glimmering light in Jehu, but none really good. And in Judah, what we see as well is 19 kings, one queen, six good kings, two that are a mix, and 11 bad kings. And what this gives us over the course of their life and over the course of these kingdoms moving is that every earthly king fails every single one of them when you read through first and second samuel first and second kings and first and second chronicles what it gives you is this course of just riding this roller coaster of i think it's going to be better i think it's going to be it's getting terrible we're all going to die and you and i look at this and we read this and i think in some sense there's there's this part of our minds that say If we only had a king to reign over us. If we only had a king to reign over us in our country, things would be better. If we only had a king to reign over us in our family, things would be. Things would be better. There's this this aspect of which we begin to think of it as Christians. And we say, if we just had somebody powerful to sit in the White House, he would make things better for us. If we just had somebody powerful to sit for us in Austin, he'd make things better for us. If we just had somebody powerful to sit in Hollywood and make movies that represent us, things would be better for us. If we just had somebody powerful to sit in all the center of the arts to make things better, things would be better for us. We'd be more accepted. Our our, our worldview would would be more readily adhered to and taken in by the people we talk to. And we wouldn't have these issues. I'm telling you, in that, we don't want a king, we want a pawn. We don't want a king, we want a pawn. What we want in reality is for us to be king. I want a king to go out and to do these things for me. I want him to cast the world in this way for me. But ultimately, I want to be in charge. I want everybody to think like me. I want everybody to act like me. And when they step outside of that realm, I want the power and the ability to remove that king. This is idolatry in its most heinous form. Because you want to be your own king. Every earthly king fails. In the midst of these things, there's this terrible tension in our hearts. Because we look out at the world. And there's this desire in my heart, and I'm certain there's this desire in many of our hearts, to think, man, if we had a righteous president... 
If, if, if we had this and he enacted righteous laws and he made this change and there's this terrific movement within government, perhaps then we could see a return of people to the things of God. And I think in some aspect, this can be a righteous and this can be a noble thing. And so some of us see ourselves moving into the political sphere. And some of us have these things and say, listen, I'm not going to watch this anymore. I'm only Pure Flix. And y'all, I've never watched Pure Flix. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the greatest thing in the world. If it is for you, I'm so happy for you. But we need to talk for real. I think there's this thing inside of us that says we want things to be better. And y'all, that's the spirit in us. We see depravity in this world and we say, we want this to be better. We see a world so completely confused, moving in terms of not really understanding gender as something a a creator God assigned that is binary in nature, male and female. We see a world that's calling into question basic fact of gender. And as a Christian, we see this and we just say, man, these things should not be so. The God of this world is corrupting the minds of the people. He has blinded their eyes to the truth. And we want to press into that and we want to change that. We see the way that people are distorting sexuality and and, and they're distorting the family and they're distorting any number of things. We see righteous, or, or we see the world rife with injustice. And we say, we want to change that. We want to press into that. We want to be in that sphere. But in reality, we don't want to be in that sphere. In reality, we don't want to have awkward conversations with people who are struggling with gender identity. And we don't want to have these conversations. In reality, what we say is, I want to give this to you. I want to give this conversation to you. I want to give this power to you. And I want you to rain the sword down on them. And I want you to make them stop. Because they're ruining my conception of the world. So we write letters to politicians and we meet with them and we lobby with them and we, we, we restrict ourselves and pull ourselves into these spheres of comfort and we surround ourselves with only people who look like us, talk like us, think like us, feel like us and see the world through the lens of scripture like us. So much safer. So much more comfortable. Gather together with some gal pals for a time in the word sip some coffee, some good tea, get together with some fellas, eat some meat, drink some, why do men always want to eat meat? Like, my poor colon's like, please. Bacon, it never argues, but just like steak all the time. Man, there's just something comfortable about Christians getting together. But he's not created us for this. He's not created us for this cloistered, existence he's created us for radical engagement he's created us thank you. he's created us to be salt and light jesus's words in matthew chapter 5 in a city on a hill can't be hidden god has created us for radical engagement in our communities so we need to release our crowns we need to take down the crowns that we've assigned to the people in our culture And to say, man, this isn't for somebody else to press into this issue. This is for me. A bearer of the image of God, one entrusted with the power of the gospel, moving in these spheres wherever God takes you, having awkward conversations, being engaged in these various arenas. It's not for somebody else. It's for you. 
It's not for somebody else in schools. It's for you. It's not somebody else in your place of work. It's for you. It's not for someone else in culture. It's for you. Everywhere you go, you carry the banner of Jesus. You have a king. Represent him well. You have a king. You are not one. You have a king. Quit treating him like a pawn. Listen, 1 Peter 2 and chapter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10 say this about our relationship to him, to Jesus. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is who we are. This is not who you are. This is who we are. This is who his churches are. This is who his people are. This is who Ridgecrest, Highland Terrace, Crosspoint, this is who we are together. This is who we are as his people come together. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Listen to this, a people for his own possession. You think your life is yours, you're deluding yourself. Your life is his. And what is your purpose? He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once we were disparate and wandering in darkness, once we were mired in filth and sin, but he has rescued us from this. He says, you are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Recognize the fullness of this, the answer of this, the purpose of this is found in Jesus. And before they ever had a king, the answer was always Jesus. When they said, we want a king to go out and to reign war for us. We want a king to go out and to fight our battles. We want a king to go out and represent us. We want a king to go out and set the world right. The response from God in heaven is, you already have one. You have me and you have one coming. So this is why we see in Hannah's prayer, in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10, she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them he will thunder in heaven the lord will judge the ends of the earth he will give strength to his king y'all they didn't have a king in hannah's prayer under the inspiration of the holy spirit they did not yet have a king this is pointing to one king she says he will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointing We recognize that God's answer for us, for our world, is one true and righteous king, and his name is Jesus. And when Jesus came, we recognize that he wasn't immediately seen as a king. In fact, his life began being persecuted by a king who wanted to raise up and put to death all children under two, but in God's sovereign power, he protected him. We recognize that as Jesus ruled and reigned on the earth, as he's teaching, as he's instructing, as he's calling men and women to him, in the midst of these things, they didn't put on his head a crown until the end of his life, and then it was a crown of mocking, a crown of thorns. We recognize in Jesus' life that he, did, he wasn't covered in this great, this, this, this great majestic movement where they said, let me put this robe on you, let me anoint you with oil, let us have this terrific meeting before you. Jesus' anointing was an anointing of blood. His anointing, he was covered with your sin. He was covered with my sin. And in taking on our sin, this preparatory move, Jesus, king of the universe, laid down his life that we might live. 
And so good King Jesus, ruling and reigning, didn't stay in the grave, but he rose and he sits at the right hand of God. And to you, Christian, Jesus says this, submit yourself to me. Quit searching for lesser kings. Quit searching for lesser men and women to represent you. Who would be pawns for you, who submit to you. And quit searching for men and women you can entrust your heart to. He holds your heart. He alone rules and reigns. Abandon your pursuit of self-kingship and lay down your imaginary rule. Jesus would say to you, pick up your cross and follow me. The way of following Jesus is the way of death. The way of following and submitting to King Jesus is the way of death. It is a death to self. It is a way of sacrifice. But it's the only way to be a Christian. There is no other way. To the unbeliever, I believe that God would say to you, come to know Jesus. This Jesus who rules and reigns in the Christian's heart. And maybe you've seen the Christians around you and you recognize that they're nothing more than a bunch of people who run around with Trump flags or Biden flags and they're arguing about how their view of the world is this and how their view of the world is that. But they don't really seem to love this king that you're talking about. And so you're basing your decision upon a group of people that you don't really know that you're incredibly frustrated with. Listen, base your decision on whether or not you choose to follow Jesus on Jesus, not people who are failing to represent him. And God loves you. He sent his son to King Jesus to die for you, to take upon your sins, upon his body. And then overcoming sin and death, he doesn't look at you and say, your life's a mess. Get it straight. Come by the house a little bit later. Jesus says to you, your life's a mess, but I took it on myself. Your life's a mess, but come to know me. Your life's a mess, but come and receive me. Your life's a mess, but come receive forgiveness of sins. If you don't know Jesus today, if you've not asked him to forgive you your sins, to restore your heart to him, today's the day for you to know Jesus. Listen, in the midst of this life, we look around and, and the world is a mess. The world is a mess. We argue about what truth is. We argue about what gender is. We wonder. We argue about who can be married to who. We come out with a truth statement, and it's hate speech. We come out with a truth statement, and we get canceled. Jesus is not deterred. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit aren't sitting around in heaven saying, "Oh, what if they cancel our book? What if Amazon quits delivering us?" Holy Spirit's like, y'all, it's the Bible app. Come on now. <laughs> Jesus is an Android user. <laughs> God the Father with his iPhone saying, come to the light. God in heaven, Jesus, the Holy Spirit are not concerned. The angels of heaven are not concerned that we might be canceled. Jesus told us in his word that we would be persecuted. Why, we, why would we ever expect that we'd make it through this life without it? The only way to escape persecution as a Christian is to not show people around you that you're a Christian. The only way to make it through this world and have people never look at you strangely or cut you off as their friend is to not stand for your King Jesus. Y'all, this is where he is and this is where he's coming. Revelation 19 and we're done. 
John writes, John writes in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. He says, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he hath a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ reigns. He rules. And he's coming again. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, you've given us a king we didn't deserve but you've given us the king we need. God, help us not to make a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus when we raise up for ourselves kings and queens of our own making. God, help us not to make a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when we entrust our hearts to those kings or when we entrust a false rule to ourselves. You've not made us to be kings and queens. You've not made us to rule the place in our heart, but you have made us to submit to your son, good King Jesus. So God, would you correct our hearts? Would you alleviate our fears? Would you remove our anxieties? Would you wake us up from our faulty sense of control? God, we also ask that you would be moving and stirring in the hearts of those who do not know your son, Jesus. They have not yielded themselves to the power of your love. God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would call them, that you would awaken them to the reality of sin, the grave nature of death and separation from you forever. God, in your love, would you call them? Father God, we love you. We submit to you. And God, I pray that we would honor and represent you well. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.